as well so that to give the church an opportunity to to uh, fellowship together have a fun night the next morning there will be a rescheduled uh, prep school teachers meeting it was originally scheduled for this saturday morning but due to harvey who in this case is not an imaginary rabbit but a hurricane, we will not be having a uh, meeting on Saturday morning. And we're going to, contrary to what I sent out earlier, we're going to go ahead and announce that uh, if all things continue as they are projected to to be in, in terms of the forecast, we will not have church on Sunday morning. That's to let our live streaming audience know we're going to go ahead and announce that now. There are a lot of, some people are making plans to leave town, other things, what are they going to do? That's going to be the schedule. Now, if this doesn't turn out, and the doomsday weather forecasters that predict the end of the world by another watery deluge this weekend, uh, if that does not turn out, we'll all know it. And we will send out information that we will have church on Sunday. But uh, for now, we will consider it canceled. All activities through the weekend, uh, University of Houston, a number of school districts have all canceled activities anywhere from beginning tomorrow morning through Monday. So it may even last longer if their projections are anywhere close to being right. So uh, that's the main announcement, I believe. So be prepared. I hope that everybody is prepared and that you will stay dry and be very careful. And if you need to go to the store to get anything, I encourage you to be there at 545 in the morning before they open at 6 because everybody else in Houston, 10,000 of your dearest neighbors will be there uh, when the doors open. Um, so we were at Costco this morning quite early, right when they opened, and there wasn't a parking place to be found. Anyhow, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll pray in just a minute, but I want to uh, let the live streaming group know, as well as y'all, that we're going to have a missionary report at the conclusion of tonight's Bible class, so don't just click off and stop listening. Jim Myers is here, and he's been traveling in the U.S. this summer, and so I'm going to end class a little bit early so that will give Jim time to give us uh, an update on what is going on with him and what's happening in, in Kiev and, and his various ministries in Africa, Brazil, and around the world. 
Let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light so that God the Holy Spirit can use the Word of God to sanctify us, to mature us spiritually, and to strengthen and encourage us. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness to us, and of the fact that we live in a hostile environment, that in this nation for the last 300 years, it has not been a hostile environment for Christians, but it is in many ways now, and that will only intensify. And much as it was a hostile environment in the first century, second century, and in many areas of Christendom today, where believers are living in hostile environments in Muslim-controlled areas, as well as areas where uh, paganism and uh, hostility to Christianity through various worldviews uh, reign supreme. Father, strengthen us by your word. And Father, we pray for us, for those in this congregation, and for those who live along the Texas Gulf Coast with this storm coming in, We pray that you would guide and direct it to areas where that that are least populated and that you would watch over us, protect us, and we pray that if possible that this storm could bounce back out into the Gulf and not uh, wreak havoc along the coast here in Texas. Father, we pray that you would give us opportunities to witness, even in the midst of the adversity of this storm, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. The last time we were doing verse-by-verse exposition in 1 Peter chapter 3 was on Bible class on Thursday night, February the 9th, before I went to Kiev. And so tonight we're back there. We have had a diversion for the last six months as we've been studying the topic of apologetics and how to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So tonight what I want to do is a bit of review and focus our attention on a topic that is uh, quite timely, and that is the topic of facing adversity. Specifically in this context, the adversity isn't just the adversity that is normal to living in the devil's world and living with the sin nature, but the adversity that comes from a system or systems that we're involved in, whether it is uh, employment, whether it is government and national, or whether it is some other organization that we are a part of that's becoming more and more hostile to Christianity and those who hold to a Judeo-Christian worldview. 1 Peter 3.17 comes at the end of the paragraph that we've been uh, studying and reflecting upon, and at the end of that conclusion, I mean at the end of that paragraph with this statement, Peter is once again reiterating the theme 
of suffering, which is a major theme throughout First Peter. And he says, for it is better. If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And so we need to analyze this a little bit. We did this before in Lesson 82, which was the last time we were going verse by verse through Peter. When he says, for it is better, he's telling us as believers that in terms of adversity, there are different kinds of adversity. Sometimes we suffer because we deserve it, because we make bad decisions, because we are letting our sin nature uh, control us and dictate to us and move us in the wrong direction. But here he says it's better if it is the will of God. And that's a first-class condition. Now, I want to remind you that in Greek there are basically four ways in which a conditional clause can be expressed. It's this idea of if something, then something. And a first-class condition sometimes has the idea of sense. And it might be that way here because you do have a passage, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. That's a promise. Living godly means pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and you will suffer for that. So that could be what Peter is saying here, that it is the will of God, and we will, to one degree or another, suffer for doing good rather than, I mean, suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. Now, the words here that are on the screen are the key words we find throughout Peter. Basically, the uh, verb pasco, which means to suffer, but it can mean to endure persecution or hostility. It's the word that is used of Christ's sufferings, both physically and spiritually, on the cross. I think it's interesting that as we get into the the next paragraph, verse 18 begins, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. We are in the midst of studying his agony in Gethsemane in Matthew on Sunday morning. So as we go through this, the upcoming verses, it fits together and complements what we're studying on Sunday morning. I love it when a God's plan comes together like that sometimes. We have the word pasco, then we have the word for doing good, which is the verb form of agathos, which is the noun. This is agatha, that's the first part of this compound word, and poieo, and it means to do good. But in many cases, the idea of doing good has to do not just with doing relatively good things, but doing that which is intrinsically good, that which has value in our spiritual life and will count for eternity and will be rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. Then the other word is kakapoieo. Poieo, again, is the word for doing something. But kakas has the idea of doing evil, doing harm, and in a number of contexts has the idea of going through persecution. 
where the reason you're going through suffering, the reason you lose your job, not just because the the, uh, economy is down, but because you're targeted because you're a Christian, or the reason that something is happening negatively in your life is because you're a Christian. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along. Now, as we look at this section, we're reminded that Peter has introduced this topic of suffering earlier. In terms of the major sections, the first major section started in 1 Peter 2.18, where he's talking about servants. So he's applying it to servants. And as I taught that, I said this, this probably relates, we think of servant as someone who's paid help. This is not someone who's paid help. This is a slave. And the command is to submit to your masters or your owners with all fear. That means that in some cases they're going to be good and kind, but in others they're going to be harsh. And that's the case that he makes here. Be submissive to your masters with all fear or respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And we've studied that in detail, that when we are in authority relationships, sometimes the person in authority is not good. Sometimes they're evil. Sometimes they're mean. Sometimes they're abusive. Sometimes it's important, if we can, in a marriage, for example, to separate from someone who is physically abusive and maybe in some cases emotionally abusive just for self-defense and self-protection. This isn't saying that women should stay in a marriage where they are being abused physically or emotionally or stay physically in the same house with such a man or a man with such a woman. But since the issue is authority, it would be the wife who is submissive to the husband. There's a principle there of self-defense. Where that goes is another issue. And then Peter says... For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. He uses the word or the noun agathos here just to show how these these words I pointed out at the beginning run all the way through, through Peter. And he's talking about not obey your masters, not only those who are good and kind, grace oriented, gentle, doing intrinsically good things, but also to those who are not. The, then at the end when he says that we, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief suffering wrongly, that's an interesting phrase. The verb pasco is used here in a participial form plus the word adikas. Now the Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosune, that which is right or right uh, or, or righteous is from the root dike, the noun form. And when you put that A in the front, it negates it, like our English preposition UN. And the idea here is that this is unrighteousness. This is something that is wrong, that violates a standard. So you're suffering, and you know it's unjust. You know that the other person is totally wrong and has no right to treat you that way. But you've chosen, for conscience sake, toward God, to endure that grief and that situation. That's a choice. Maybe a time when you choose not to. The same language is used several times by 
Peter already, he actually he introduces the concept of suffering, like any good writer does, at the introduction to First Peter. Right at the beginning, in First Peter chapter one, verse six, he is he makes mention that those to whom he is writing are grieved by various trials. He says, "In this you greatly rejoice." Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And I want you to pay attention. You ought to go home and read through First Peter. You're not going to be coming to church Sunday morning, so you can read First Peter two or three times. Read Matthew. You've got an hour plus. Read Matthew. Read Second Samuel. Take advantage of the opportunity. And what, what Peter says here in verse, in verse 6 is that, it's connecting joy and being grieved once again going through that sorrow because of testing and that juxtaposition of joy and grief we saw the same ideas present as our lord who never lost his joy because he is immutable and he was sinless but he also experienced grief Serious grief, perilupeo, which intensifies that root of lupeo, while he was in the Garden of Eden, I mean Garden of Gethsemane. So if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly, and then we have the next verse, which says that they have been tested by fire, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And I pointed out that the vocabulary in these two verses is very close to the vocabulary of James 1, uh, 2 through 4. Peter is talking about the same things that James is talking about, that the believer is going to go through evaluation testing in this life that's presented by suffering and by adversity and in some cases by overt hostility and persecution. But the pattern, the model for how we should handle that opposition, that that focused opposition and hostility and persecution, it always goes back to Christ. And he brings Christ into this in verse 11. He says, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of God who was in them, that is the prophets he mentioned in the previous verse in the Old Testament, was indicating when he, that is God, the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. Now, this weekend when you're reading First Peter through three or four times, you should circle words that have to do with suffering and synonyms that have to do with suffering, such as fiery trial, testing, things like that, along with the word sufferings but also the word joy or rejoice, and along with that, glory. Because those words are linked together numerous times because that's what helps us, having that mentality to go through and to face hostility, difficulty, everyday adversity, whatever it might be. And when we're facing difficulty, it's that if we do it, walking by the Spirit, trusting in God's word, claiming promises, then we can have joy at the same time and it leads to glory 
to glorification of Christ, and we experience some of that glory even today in our own spiritual life. Now, as we go through 1 Peter, the first major Christological passage that focuses on suffering is given in the second chapter, beginning in verse 19. And in chapter 2, verse 19, we read, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. That's the context we looked at initially with the command for servants to be submissive to masters even when they treat them harshly. And the explanation of that then takes us right to the cross. Jesus is the pattern. He's the pattern to understand love. He's the pattern to understand suffering. He's the pattern to understand uh, the spiritual life as he endures suffering by means of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? Well, we all know that when we mess up and we get chewed out, in this case it was more serious than that, they would be beaten or whipped for, for failure and doing the wrong thing, then we all know that we deserve it, so we take it patiently. But he says when you do good, when you're working hard, when you're doing the right thing, when there's no just cause and you're singled out and you are treated harshly, he says if you take that patiently without reacting in pride or anger or bitterness or resentment, without gossiping and condemning and judging the person in authority over you, if you take it patiently, that is commendable before God. He goes on to say, for this, to this you were called. That's an important word. That means that this is part of our job description as a believer in Jesus Christ, because Christ also suffered for us, and he did not suffer justly. He was without sin. Even Pilate recognized that and washed his hands afterwards and said, I can find no fault with him. He was sinless. He did not deserve any of the suffering that he endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers or at the hands of the crowd. Said He's our pattern. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. He's the pattern. How am I going to endure some person who is a jerk, some person at work who has it out for me, some person who spreads rumors about me, some person who, because I'm a Christian, and they're making all kinds of assumptions about me because they're a closet homosexual, and they're out to destroy me because I'm a Christian. You may not ever even know that in some situations, that that's what's motivating, mo motivating someone. So, verse 23 describes Christ's work. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He put it in the Lord's hands and said, well, the Lord's going to deal with it. Here, now, or in eternity, God's going to deal with it. Sometimes we want to sit and we want to watch. 
We want to make sure that person gets their comeuppance and that it's worse for them. And sometimes we actually, God gives us a little glimpse. Sometimes he doesn't, but we put it in the Lord's hands. Now, the next Christological passage that illustrates how to handle this sort of undeserved suffering is in the passage we're studying that we're, we're about, and we're continuing to study in 1 Peter 3.13 through 18. Actually, it goes down to 4.1. So I wanted to put this whole package up on the board so we can see the context And Peter says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, remember who's talking here. This is Peter who betrays the Lord, denies the Lord, rather. When when Jesus has been arrested and Peter is asked, Well, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, No, 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 I don't know anything about him. I don't know him. I'm not with him. I'm with with these other guys. I, I don't know him at all. Instead of being obedient, he chooses to duck out and deny Christ because he doesn't want to suffer persecution or hostility. He doesn't want to be arrested with the Lord. So remember who is speaking here when he says, he's basically, I've been through this. It's better to suffer for doing the right thing than for doing the wrong thing. Verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. And then he begins a quote from the Psalms, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, always, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I want you to notice the context here. I can't remember if I brought this out before. The context, why they're asking for the hope that is in you is because there's a situation where you are being persecuted It's hostile. You're being picked on and attacked because you're a Christian. And you don't react in kind. You're not going to lower yourself to the level of the unbeliever and the pagan. You're going to exhibit gentleness, kindness. You're going to demonstrate grace grace orientation to the person who is persecuting you. And people are going to notice that that's not normal. And that will give the opportunity for people to ask, the question, why do you have this optimism? Why are you hopeful? Why do you focus on the future when everything is crashing down around you? Verse 16 goes on to say, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers. Now, we see that today. We see that starting more and more where Christianity, Christians are blamed for things that are going on. One example that I'll lump with others in a in a little bit is a situation where that racist hate group called the Southern Poverty Law Center continues to identify the American Family Association and other Christian groups who take a stand against homosexual or same-sex marriage as hate groups. It's not long before anyone who believes that same-sex marriage is wrong is going to be identified as a hater that's already happening and if you're identified as someone who doesn't believe in same-sex marriage and you work for any number of companies or corporations in this country the day is going to come 
when you will be defi- uh, you you will be defined as a hater, and you will lose your job because you're just believe the Bible and you believe the ethical moral statement of the Scripture, and unfortunately we see that on the horizon, and then we get to the point where we find ourselves starting up again in 1 Peter 3.17 that it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Notice how he talks about being a, a, a follower of what is good, intrinsically good. That's the same word agathos. He talks about suffering for righteousness sake, that which is consistent with the character of God. And he talks about Um, hope as well that hope comes from the gospel and knowing what our destiny is that even if we uh, lose our life for our for following Christ we have a future that is secure Christ lost his life because he was doing the will of the father it contrasts evildoers with the good conduct in Christ, and again, good and evil, and this word evildoers and evils, the word kakos, which has as part of its uh, meaning and indi- the indication or connotation of those that are persecuting Christians. Now, the th- uh, this section ends with the conclusion in chapter 4, verse 1, which reads, Therefore, uh, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same mind. If you're going to be able to withstand hostility and persecution, you need to think the same way. Can you think of another passage where we're told to have the same mind that Christ had? Philippians chapter 2. It's the same thing, that he humbled himself by being obedient to the cross that what we're supposed to do is submit to the authority of God and it may cost us our life in a miserable way. Now the third section where we get another focus on Christ, another section with lessons on Christology tied in with suffering is in 1 Peter chapter 4 starting in verse 12 and going down through 5.1. And we see this numerous, and actually it goes a little further down to 5.10 where we have these words for suffering again lumped together, linked together in this section. In 4.12, Peter returns back to his topic. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. That word for try is to test you, to examine you, to see what you're made of spiritually. And then in verse 13, he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed. Now, I'm going to help you with your homework for this weekend. Okay, you're going to read through 1 Peter three or four times. And here you have sufferings, Christ's sufferings. You have the word glory. And at the very beginning, you have the word rejoice. All three of those words that I told you to focus on as you read through First Peter. Because that's an important, important connection. 
So 1 Peter 4.15 mentions our suffering again. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody. That's, that's deserved suffering. Suffering because we have committed sin or a crime, and therefore we are facing consequences for bad decisions, wrong decisions, criminal decisions, sinful decisions. That verb in verse 15 is not repeated again in verse 16, but in most English versions, it adds it because it makes sense, and they put it in italics, so I've put that in the list here. And then in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 19, we read, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Just a little reminder there that the doctrine of creation is not just some secondary, tertiary doctrine in Scripture. It's foundational to every doctrine in Scripture. If God isn't the creator of all things, then just throw your Bible away. That's why there's been such a historical attack on those first 11 chapters in Genesis. But we also have in this section not only passages talking about our suffering, but that the pattern for our endurance of suffering is the suffering that is mentioned uh, in relation to Christ. Now, verses 9 and 10 also talk about uh, the same sufferings that we have experienced by our brotherhood in the world. But may the God, and then in 5.10, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Okay, those are the last two verses related to our suffering. Do you notice anything in those two verses? Have the word sufferings in verse 9. You have suffered in verse 10. You have glory in verse 10. You see these patterns again and again. But the pattern for our handling suffering, we go back to 1 Peter 5, 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, who I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that was revealed. Okay, again, you have sufferings and glory mentioned, but this time in, in relationship to to Christ. Okay, this gives us a lot to think about. This give, helps us to take what Peter is going to talk about in terms of suffering in 1 Peter 3 and following and put that within this context as he's developing his what he's teaching us in these sections. You have three major sections. Each time he starts talking about suffering in a different context, he always takes us back to Christ and his sufferings. So that's good that we're studying through the uh, time of Christ in the, from the garden to the grave on Sunday morning. So in verse 1 Peter 3, 9 and following, Peter is reminding them of how they should handle adversity and specifically hostility from the king. He's reviewed that. Masters, owners and wives to husbands. And each of these groups, it has application to any kind of adversity, but the context of Peter indicates that he's this suffering in the way he's talking about is the result of targeted opposition 
because they're a Christian. It's not just because they've got a mean boss or a physically violent uh, owner, but that he's targeting them specifically because they are a Christian. So he quotes from Psalm 33 in this section, which shows that this is an important teaching even in the Old Testament, that we are not to speak out, we're not to be verbally abusive to those who are persecuting us in this way. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. In other words, don't lower yourself to the level of the person who's attacking you or persecuting you. Let God take care of it. Uh, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Although the other person may, it takes two to have peace. But we're to seek peace, and at some point maybe we have to do something else, but that is determined by the circumstance. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is going to go to war for us on his terms because he actually knows the battlefield and the circumstances a lot better than we do. And that leads us up to the paragraph we've been looking at. And Peter says, And who is he who will harm you? And the word there for harm is kakao, from kakos, to do evil. So when he says, Who is he who will harm you? It's not just someone who's going to hurt your feelings or cause you loss of a job or something something that is simple but also painful. It's someone who specifically is doing this to cause you suffering and to persecute you because you're a believer. That factor is what's entering into this. It applies, of course, if your Christianity isn't the issue, but Peter again and again is talking about somebody who is being persecuted for their righteousness, for doing the right thing, and that means their stand for Christ. To show you that this word has that meaning in many places, in Acts 7, 6, it's translated oppress as the Israelites. This is in Stephen's uh, sermon, his indictment of the religious leadership in Israel. And he's reminding them of God's grace in their past and the fact that they were slaves in Egypt and they were oppressed. That's the same word, cacao. And verse 19 Uh, This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers. That's the Pharaoh. Again, it's persecution. Other passages, Acts 12, 1, Herod harassed. This was Herod Agrippa, uh, persecuted those in the church. Also used in um, Acts 14, 2, stirred up the Gentiles and Acts 18.10, to hurt you all comes from this word, kakao. So 1 Peter 3.13, as I've already said, is talking about who will persecute you if, maybe you will, maybe you won't. It's up to you whether or not you're going to be a follower of Jesus. First you have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to trust Christ. That's how you get justified. That's how you're saved. 
But after that, you have to decide, am I going to be a student of Jesus? Am I going to be a disciple? Am I going to be a real follower of Jesus? Or am I just going to be happy that I'm not going to go uh, to the lake of fire? So if, maybe you will, maybe you will not decide to be a follower of what is good. And so uh, that word follower means to imitate the example of Jesus. So what we see here is that though severe, though severe persecution occurs, it's not the norm. The norm is that people do not attack you because you're good. So in this case, they're attacking you specifically because they are offended by our righteousness. And I want you to pay attention to that because in our world today, there are a lot of people who are becoming more and more vocal because they despise the righteousness of Christians. They want to call bad good and good bad. I was doing a little bit of research on this today, and I ran across one article from 2001, and what caught my attention was the first example that the writer gave, and that was of a woman in Houston, Texas, was ordered by local police to stop handing out gospel tracts to children who knocked on her door during Halloween. The officers told her that that was an illegal activity, which was not true, but she was facing opposition. In Madison, Wisconsin, there's a group that's called the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they distribute anti-Christian pamphlets to Christian, I mean to public school children called We Can Be Good Without God. That, that group has grown in power and influence over the last uh, 15 years. You also see a number of things that are said in various uh, entertainment media by comedians that are hostile to Christians because especially conservative Christians hold values that they despise, that they hate. The uh, I've already mentioned the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, which is just an, an absolute abomination. There's also... Um, a group called the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago that some years ago warned that if the Southern Baptist held a convention in their city that it would foment hate crimes against minorities. This is only intensifying. There's an article from the Washington Times last Tuesday, I mean on Tuesday, April the 5th last year, 2016, and I just want to read a couple of things to you from this article. It says that a poll finds that in just two years, the number of Americans who think Christians are facing growing intolerance in the U.S. has drastically increased. 63% of respondents in the LifeWay Research Survey said that they agree or strongly agree that Christians are facing growing levels of persecution up from 50% in 2013. So it's gone from 50% to 63%. The bulk of the surge comes from respondents who said they strongly agree with the statement. Um, similar number, 60% said that religious liberty is on the decline in America, which is up from 54% in 2013. Further on in the article, 
There's a quote from one of the people involved with the poll said, as the diversity inclusion movement grows, more and more companies become diversity centric. What you really begin to see is a glaring gap that exists. As a Christian, you begin to see that you're being excluded from the culture and excluded from the conversation. He said, we're seeing language that changes free exercise, which is the Constitution, to freedom of religion, which means you can do what you want within the four walls of your church, but you can't bring it out into the marketplace of ideas. To underscore this point, faith-driven consumer, remember that, look that up on the Internet, do a search on it, faith-driven consumer publishes a faith equality index which rates how welcoming specific businesses are to religious people. In other words, does the culture of the company make you feel comfortable as a Christian who believes in biblical values, or is there subtle opposition or hostility to you as a company? Um, So, for example, AT&T scores a perfect 100 with the Human Rights Campaign's Corporate Equality Index, but received only an 18 out of 100 from faith-driven consumer. Now, you can look it up. You can evaluate it if you think, uh, you know, I, I didn't have time to read all their criteria, but it was a very interesting thing, so you can take a look at it and see what different companies recently apple made this made a decision just this last week that they were going to give uh, an inordinate amount of money to this racist southern poverty law center and i've heard a number of christians who are going to who have said well especially me because i love apple is you need to get rid of apple because look what they're doing with the money they make my response is hmm wonder what the alternative is Microsoft. Wonder how they're rated on this website. Well, it turns out that Apple was rated at, um, I think it was rated at 42. Microsoft was rated at 18. Okay, so you'd have to go look at everything. Now, that's before this last decision, so that may change, but it was just interesting that um, interstate batteries... Some of you may have an interstate battery in your car. I know that the CEO and founder of the company, man who owns the company, is a strong Christian. He's been on the board for Dallas Theological Seminary for many years. And that organization got an 83 rating. Pepsi got a 35. Hobby Lobby, which was well-known as a Christian family, the Green family, their driving force behind the Museum of the Bible, but they have a rating of 74. Chick-fil-A has also been getting a lot of publicity because of their stand against same-sex marriage. They got a rating of 76. Some of you go to Academy, they get a rating of 54. I'm beginning to think anything over 50 is pretty good. Southwest Airlines gets a rating of 23, and United gets a rating of 27. So if you work for those companies that's going to become more and more of a problem. And there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about policies within Google and and how much you're pressured within that organization. Jim and I were talking about this just last night, and he was talking about the son of a pastor, a doctrinal church pastor up in 
up in Washington State. He was an engineer. He worked for Boeing, right? Worked for Boeing and decided the culture at Bo Boeing was evil. It's not just, it's, it's, it's what they promote. It's the kind of things that they pressure their people to go through, the kind of touchy-feely um, things that you've all experienced in your jobs. I had a guy in my church back in the 80s who, who was just livid because of the new age indoctrination he had to go with, through with Southwestern Bell. It's up to each believer to de determine how much they can handle that. But that pressure, that pressure is there. So we have to determine how we're going to handle it. And sometimes we're going to have to handle it by saying, I'm just going to have to go get a job, as this one man did, left Boeing, left a high income, and he's working in a warehouse. Because there his Christianity is not under, under pressure. So this is what we, have to, uh, what we have to face, and this is what we have to deal with. I want to close by looking at 1 Peter 4.12 and 13 before Jim comes up. Peter closes out this late letter, and he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to test you. We're living in the devil's world. We're living with people who are sinners, who are hostile to God, so we should not think it strange that we are being targeted more and more. But then he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. How many words are you going to circle in those verses? Okay, rejoice. Does that remind you of any verses? James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. That's part how we grow as Christians. Let's bow our heads together, close in prayer. Remember, don't leave. Jim will come up in a minute, and he will uh, give us an update on his ministry. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. It is harsh and hard for many of us to face the reality that the tide seems to have turned against our Judeo-Christian heritage, and that there are corporations, and that there are in some parts of this country, huge masses of the culture that are virulently opposed to Christian morals, Christian ethics, biblical morals, and biblical ethics, and biblical standards. And they shake their fist at you, a foreshadowing of what will come in the tribulation. Father, yet they did this for our Lord. They persecuted him. They beat him mercilessly. They tortured him, they nailed him to the cross, and then he was crucified. Father, he was rejected not because he did anything wrong, but because he did everything right. And so we ought not be surprised when the hostility of the world turns against us. But we do know that our Lord has given us what we need because, as he said, he overcame the world, and we can also. 
encourage us, strengthen us spiritually from your word. And Father, we pray also at this time for Jim as he comes up and we pray for his ministry, thankful for his faithfulness and all that he has he has done because he's willing to serve you, all that you've been able to accomplish through him and through those that he has uh, trained there in Kiev. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jim. Eddie, go ahead and let him turn on the handheld here. There we go. Thank you. Good to see you again. Good to be back here. We've been on the road for about two months. We uh, went to uh, some 12 states and visited some 24 churches around the country. Uh, we went from here over to the West Coast, clear up into British Columbia and back down through Idaho and Utah, Colorado, crossed Oklahoma, came back to Texas, and I also went up to Ohio for a few days. So uh, we've been around a little bit this summer uh, visiting all of these different churches. and. Uh, it's quite an experience to go to so many churches. We typically go to 20, 25 churches every summer in different parts of the country when we come home. And uh, so we get a different picture, I think, than, than most people have. You, you, you're able to come here and you get consistent, solid Bible teaching. And you're here with people who really love the Word of God and are doctrinally oriented, have a very different viewpoint in some of the places I've been, it's, it's been shocking that they don't share our values, particularly in the political arena. And uh, unfortunately, in many of the churches also, it's, uh, we don't share the same thing spiritually. Some of the churches we've gone to uh, have capitulated on their teaching of doctrine. They have gotten into more of the pop psychology or how to be successful in the workplace than uh, they are in preparing people to pay, uh, face the world around us. Some are uh, teaching sound doctrine but no Bible. This is distressing to me. We go places where there are people that know a lot of doctrine, they don't know any Bible. And they may state a principle of doctrine, but they couldn't show you in the Bible where that is taught at all. And some of the churches we've been to, honestly, they don't open the Bible. And these are still Bible churches. And the, the theology may be sound, but uh, there's no Bible teaching. And I believe we've got to have the Word of God. And then some churches are getting weird. And I... I don't know how to explain this. We went to a church. It has the name of Grace in its title. But they have painted the back wall black. It's a flat black. And there are other churches around the country now, and we're talking about evangelical churches, 
who have painted their auditorium black. Why? I don't know. A little bit strange. It's like you're in a cave. And uh, we were in this church where uh, they have no windows uh, in this auditorium. They control the lighting. And when it was time for the pastor to pray, they brought down all of the lights except for one little spotlight right on the pastor's face. And he offered his prayer. And I asked what that was all about. He said, I'm trying to create an atmosphere. I I don't know what the atmosphere was he was trying to create, but for me it was a little bit spooky. And uh, so we see all sorts of things. Uh, Many of the churches that we visited are old as far as the congregation is concerned. Uh, Some of them, average age, I suppose, is around 65 or so. And uh, no middle-aged people, no young people. Many of these have no children in them. And so they're probably going to die of old age within the next 10 years. And this is also a problem. We see many churches that are just evaporating. They're disappearing from the landscape and the witness in the community is gone and this is happening in many places across the country and uh, as we find fewer and fewer places that are teaching sound doctrine of course this is going to have an impact in our nation as well what we find uh, talking with pastors in a lot of different places that People who come to church, they are not looking for answers. They're not looking for truth. They're not looking for good Bible teaching. They're looking for good relationships. They they want someone to accept them just as they are, and uh, they want someone to hold their hand and, and pat them on the back and just try to encourage them uh, right where they are. But... Uh, if you try to tell them that there is an answer to their problems and they can have stability and peace and joy, they're saying, well, there's got to be something else. And uh, they'll, they'll accept anything but the truth. Um, churches, not, not many churches that we would call sound Bible teaching churches are growing There may be a few, but they are very few, and we shouldn't be discouraged by this. We need to continue doing what we know is right. We need to continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to be faithful. We need to recognize, too, that we are here for a purpose. Things are difficult in the world, and I assume that they're going to get worse before they get better. And we need to be prepared to be a remnant, uh, a small number, who are going to stand up and say, this is what I believe, this is what the Bible teaches, this is truth, and I'm not going to waver from that. And ultimately, we will find that we are the people that have the answers. And oftentimes, I, I run into people who are trying to find answers in other places, and I just ask them, well, how's how's that working out for you? Are you finding any peace? Are you finding any stability in the way that you're going? And, of course, apart from the Word of God, there there is no peace and stability. 
But I tell people, too, we should not be discouraged. We are here for a purpose. God has a purpose for us right here, right now. It's a great time to be alive because God wants to use you right now. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he talked about a crooked and perverse generation. And that's where we are today. But we are to be lights shining in the darkness of this crooked and perverse generation. And we can do that as we take in the word of God. <clears throat> so what is the state of churches around the country? There are some standing strong. There are others that are not. But for you who have been taught, you've been taught the truth, you've been taught well, you have a responsibility to stand firm with that, to apply it, to walk in the light, to walk in the spirit, and God will be glorified through us. I want to thank all of you who have uh, stood behind us, stood behind our ministry, who have prayed, who have encouraged us, who have supported us. I was thinking of 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 24 where David came back from the war and he's going to divide the spoils even with those who had stayed behind because they had not been able to go out and go to battle. And David said those who stayed behind are going to share equally with those who went out to battle. So I want to thank you. Uh, we're in a different field. We have a different arena of conflict. But I just want to thank you for your part, and uh, don't think of yourself as being second class or lesser. You just have a different job to do here, and I believe that you have equal opportunity to uh, receive reward with us. So a quick report on what we're doing in the ministry. Word of God Church is a Ukrainian church. I am not the pastor of that church. They have a Ukrainian pastor. They have Ukrainian deacons. Uh, they're taking care of all of it. And I am just thrilled to death with this so that when I came home this summer, I didn't have to say, now, you man, here's what you need to do, and you need to take care of it. Didn't have to do any of that. It's their church, and uh, they're doing a, a good job. Uh, and uh, we're pleased with that. Word of God Bible College, we're going to start again in two weeks. And uh, we continue with the same program that's been going on for many years now. And our graduates are doing a great job. They're going out. We've planted, they have planted several churches around Ukraine. And now we have Bible churches that are popping up around the country of Ukraine. This is very exciting. Uh, also, other ministries have started, uh, been started by our graduates. And we're... Uh, also pleased that we have some missionaries who've gone out to other countries. We have a family uh, working in Turkey, which is a Muslim country, doing evangelism. They've started a small church that meets in their home. Uh, we have another family in Siberia, and this man is doing a great job up there, but he has come under strong attack from the Russian Orthodox Church as well as some legalistic 
denominations because of their stand on grace, where they preach a grace gospel and they preach that you can't lose your salvation. So they have been branded as heretics. They uh, have come under opposition. Uh, very good possibility that they will have their church building taken from them. Um, but uh, they're standing firm for the grace of God, and we're proud of that. As far as uh, the country of Ukraine, uh, they have crooked politicians. Uh, I guess that's all over the world. Uh, the economy, not doing real well. And uh, there's also a conflict, as you know, uh, with Russians or Russian-backed separatists, as they call themselves. Uh, what you don't get on the news uh, is the fact that there still is a conflict. Now, it's a, not a raging conflict, but in the last 30 months, there have been more than 30,000 casualties, and uh, that's a lot of people. So I haven't followed it in the last two months, but uh, even in the month of June, there were more than 30 Ukrainians who were killed. So that may be a small number, but uh, they add up. And so there still is conflict there. And as a result of the conflict there, more than a million people have left eastern Ukraine. Uh, the propaganda says these people want to be Russians, but they didn't go to Russia. They came to western Ukraine instead or other countries uh, in Europe. Uh, and because so many people have fled, quite a number of churches have shut down because uh, they have gotten down to just a handful of people. There are other churches that even though they're small in number, they continue to meet as a church. Other churches have taken the conflict as an opportunity to evangelize and to minister to those who have lost their homes and those who are suffering economically and in other ways. And uh, I was privileged to go over and to teach a course in eastern Ukraine just uh, a few miles away from where the conflict is going on. And the pastor of the church there was saying that when the Russians were actually occupying the city before the Ukrainians took it back, that he had gone to the church just to try to ward off any vandals who might try to break into an empty building and just take advantage of the chaos. But while he was at the church overnight, they blew up his house, and so he lost everything. But uh, he's still there, he's still ministering, and uh, he's very excited about uh, the teaching of the Word of God. He wants me to come back again uh, to teach uh, the people there. Uh, so pray for peace and stability in Ukraine. We continue to have great uh, spiritual freedom there. And we can do things there you can't do here. Uh, we can go out in the street and preach Jesus. We can, we can have prayer in public. We can hand out tracts and distribute Bibles and start churches. And so uh, it's still a great place to, to do ministry, and uh, we're going to go back there. Uh, Zambia, again, uh, Zambia is a great place to do ministry. There are so many Christians there, and... They haven't been taught the Word of God, but they are very hungry for it. They are very open 
to it, and I can go to Zambia and teach six to eight hours a day, and the people will sit there, and they will ask for more. It's, it's just great to be able to go and to teach in such a place. This last spring, I went to a country I'd not been to before named Malawi. Malawi is a tiny sliver of a country just to the east of Zambia, and um, they'd been asking me for years to come, and I just hadn't been able to do it. This year, I tacked a weekend onto my trip, went over there, had a tremendous response from the people there. They want me to come back again next year. Also, uh, we continue to go to Brazil, and more and more churches are asking uh, that I come to put on conferences there. So um, the Lord has opened those doors. We're going through those doors uh, so long as we're able to do that. Uh, and so the Lord has richly uh, blessed us, and he has given us the, the ability to go. And uh, I want to thank you again for praying for us. We've enjoyed good health. And we've uh, had the resources to be able to carry on these ministries. And to a great extent, you are uh, responsible for that. So I, I just want to thank all of you for your part um, in what we do. So thank you very much. So. Today's Independence Day in Kiev, and somebody drove by through Independence Square and threw a bomb out of the car and injured a couple of people. So they had a bombing right there. And I, I haven't read yet who, who did or if they caught them or anything like that. Okay, Jim didn't tell you that he went to one church, not a Bible church. I, I mean, this is the level of teaching today where the pastor talked about the fact that he looked into the heart of God. Saw the heart of God and looked into the eyes of Jesus. So that passage for Christianity and Bible teaching, that's where we're going. And that may be the good end because at least he talked about God and Jesus. Anyway, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, Jim and Phyllis, their ministry, all the many things you do there through Oleg and through Maja and the school and through the church and through the graduates, through Igor and Julia, as they're working also in Ajatomer. Father, we pray that you would provide their logistical needs, their physical needs, financial needs, and, Father, that you would continue to bless them in the ministry as they teach your word, and that the students will go out, as they have been doing over the past uh, 17 years, and having an impact around Ukraine. Father, we thank you for those who are here tonight, those listening, and for their faithfulness to your word, and pray that we might continue to keep focused on the fact that we have been called with a special calling to live and grow and mature in Jesus Christ, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.